How was everybody? Good, I like that. At the nine o'clock, it was just dead silence. I mean, like, as everyone was doing, there was, there was nothing. Was it, is it tryptophan? Is that the chemical in Turkey that makes everyone tired? Yeah, so just to tell you what kind of dorks we are at our house Friday, um, while everyone else in the world is watching college football, me and Alicia's cousin, uh, who's an audiologist at Vanderbilt, we're arguing about which bird has more tryptophan in it, uh, chicken or turkey. And we're sitting there, and then it hit us right in the middle of the conversation. We're like, we're dorks. Like, we should stop this. And um, another funny story from Friday when we were celebrating uh, Thanksgiving, um, my in-laws, uh, all my in-laws come over, and then uh, Alicia's family from New York, they come down, and, and we have Thanksgiving at our house. And uh, they always bring a bottle of wine because they're Italians, and they're just into that. And uh, Alicia and I don't drink wine, but they always bring a bottle of wine and, and these little uh, clear cups and so they'll be sipping on wine before, uh, before we eat our, our meal. And I'm sitting there talking to uh, uh, Alicia's Uncle Dino. I'm telling you, they're very Italian. And I'm talking to Uncle Dino, and my five-year-old walks by with one of these clear cups full and just goes, boom, and knocks it back and goes, can I have another one? And I'm sitting there, and I just went, what the heck is going on right now? Like, who gave my daughter? And I didn't know that they brought an extra bottle of non-alcoholic sparkling grape juice. And I just saw my five-year-old knocking him back. And I was like, dear God, we're going to jail, you know? Like, <laughs> so not knowing uh, that they'd brought another bottle. So that was good. And it was refreshing to know that, that uh, you know, we're not awful parents. So anyways, um, whenever I get off the script, I tend to screw it up. So I'm going to get back to the word real quick. If you are new to the church or if you've been coming for a while, uh, just to remind you, if you've forgotten, um, this is what we do. We go through whole books of the Bible. We're in a book of the Bible called Acts, which is a really unique book of the Bible. It's a, it's a transitional book of the Bible. In the New Testament, the first four books of the Bible, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are the Gospels, which is essentially the story of Jesus, uh, the things Jesus did, the miracles of Christ, the teachings of Christ, and him grooming up a group of men and women that he's going to send out to all the world to tell people about him, right? To share the good news, which is the Gospel. Now, the book of Acts is precisely that. It's this group of individuals who've been filled up with the Holy Spirit of God. The church has formed, and this is the story, the accounts of them going out, not just in their city, but in neighboring cities, and as we're starting to see in other parts of the world, that they are spreading out and they are sharing the story of Jesus Christ. Now, where we are in the story is there's been a young man that has kind of risen up in the ranks of Judaism, of the Jewish faith. He's a young rabbi, a scholar in Jewish religion, right? A guy named Saul. He has risen up and he has oppressed the church. He has started persecuting the followers of Jesus. So much so that he had a man killed and he's starting to travel to neighboring cities to persecute those people. A big kind of twist in the story though is Saul leaves to go to an area called Damascus to find a bunch of Christians to persecute them. And on his way there, Jesus himself knocks him off of his horse, tells him that he's to go into the city, and long story short, Saul becomes a follower of Jesus. Fascinating, right? So Saul starts teaching the Word of God, not just the Old Testament, but the, the, the teachings that Peter and the rest of the disciples have shared, starts telling everyone that Jesus is the Son of God, that He is the Savior. The hunter then becomes the hunted, and they start trying to kill Saul. So again, long story short, they ship Saul off to modern-day Turkey, the southern part of it, an area called Tarsus. And we're not going to hear from him, as far as chronologically, for about 10 years or so. 
He's, he's up in that area, and we're going to find out later, he's been making disciples in that area, but he's off up there. Now, in chapter 9, we shift back to a guy named Peter, who's the leader of the church. One of the original followers of Christ is the leader of this following Jesus movement. He's also going all around uh, the neighboring areas of Jerusalem, teaching people. And at the end of chapter 9, we see that he's invited in to a woman's house. Her name is Tabitha, but in the Greek, it's Dorcas, but you're not allowed to laugh at that because it's in the Bible. And so he goes to this woman's house, goes to this woman's house. She is dead. She's gotten sick and died. Peter prays for her and she resurrects from the grave, right? And so what we talked about last week, because a resurrection story is a good opportunity to do this, we talked about temporary life. That's this, what we're doing right now. And then of course, we talked about the big objective of the Bible, eternal life that we are to do things in this temporary life that will hopefully lead us to an eternal life with God, okay? That's what we talked about last week. This week, we're going to talk about this, and it's odd how it fell during this weekend, during Thanksgiving weekend. We're, <coughs> excuse me. We're going to talk about this. almost swallowed my Altoid there. Everyone is invited into the family of God, but not everyone accepts that invitation. We're going to talk about that there is plenty of room at the king's table, right, for all of us, everyone to be invited in, but not everyone says yes to that. So we're going to talk about that a little bit. Got a lot of reading to do today. The lesson's not going to be any longer, but there's a couple of kind of wordy passages that I'm going to go over. So um, just be patient with me today. We're going to do all of chapter 10. If you have a Bible, fifth book of the New Testament, 10th chapter. If you don't, you should have got a notes handout, which has virtually everything you see up here. It's going to be on those notes. Um, also, if you have a smartphone, if you have the version app, Y-O-U version app, it's free that the Bible is on there and our notes are on there. Click on the bottom right button and then click on events, I believe, and then all of our notes pop up and very, very convenient, okay? All right, if you don't have any of those things, I'm gonna read it to you. So there's, there's no escaping it today. All right, so I'm gonna pray and uh, we'll get into this and um, we'll see where the Lord takes us, all right? Lord Jesus, God, we love you. We thank you, we praise you, God. Lord, uh, during this time of the year, God, Lord, let us remember what is truly important. Um, Lord, let us be thankful. Let us be humble. God, Lord, let us uh, remember how important community is and how important family is and how important your family is, God. Lord, we pray for every church in our community. Father, we pray for every nonprofit in our community. We pray, God, that you just keep your hand on us in this room today, that you open up our eyes and our ears, Lord, and help us to understand and absorb and apply what we hear today. God, we love you and we thank you, Lord. It's in your name that we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, I'm gonna start at chapter 10, verse one. I'm gonna read a little bit and I'll do my best to break it down. Here we go. There was a man in Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian regiment. He was a devout man and feared God along with his whole household. He did many charitable deeds for the Jewish people and always prayed to God. About three in the afternoon, he distinctly saw in a vision an angel of God who came in and said to him, Cornelius. Looking intently at him, he became afraid and said, what is it, Lord? The angel told him, your prayers and your acts of charity have come up as a memorial before God. Now send men to Joppa and call for Simon, who's also named Peter. He's lodging with another Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. 
When the angel who spoke to him had gone, he called two of his household slaves and a devout soldier who was one of those who attended him. After explaining everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. Now, here's the thing. God does not love influential people any more than he loves anyone else. God loves all people and he loves them equally. So here's the thing. The reason why throughout the Bible, God sometimes targets influential people is because if God can get influential people, those people have a lot of influence and the gospel spreads more rapidly. Now we saw this with an Ethiopian man a couple of chapters ago who would have been probably the third most powerful man in his entire country. So when he became a follower of Jesus and went back to Ethiopia, more than likely, he influenced a lot of people to follow Christ. Now we have a Roman centurion. This is extremely important. A, because it's a Roman, this is a Gentile, Italian Gentile, who would have had no connection to the Jewish God. Not only that, it was Roman centurions that had a hand in crucifying Jesus. They were the ones that performed the act. So we find this Roman centurion in a very uh, kind of metropolitan, cosmopolitan, sophisticated city with a lot of arts, with a lot of culture. There was also a lot of diversity, but there was tension between those diversities. So we find ourselves in a very modern area with a very modern man who had a lot of influence, okay? So Cornelius, like I said, was an Italian Gentile but he had become a monotheist, which was very radical for Romans. Romans believed in all kinds of gods, and for a Roman to believe in one God was a very, very big deal. But this man believed in one God, and he believed in the true God. We also know that he was very devoted to that. He didn't just say he followed the true God. He prayed, he worshiped, and he did, as the Bible says, charitable deeds for the Jewish people. So one day he's praying, right? And an angel was sent to him by God, and it was sent to him to tell him that you need to send some men to find a guy named Peter. About 31 miles away, you need to go and find this guy, Peter. Now, why Cornelius? This is very, very important. The reason why Cornelius was chosen is this angel says that God has recognized you because of your prayer and because of your good deeds. That got God's attention. And so what we learn is this. Notice that Cornelius had an encounter with God because he was intentional about praying to God. This should not be groundbreaking for Christians, that the more we pray, the more we get into a mature relationship with God, and the more God will use us to do things for other people. So this guy intentionally set aside time to pray, and because of that, God honored that. Now, at this point in the story, Cornelius did not know the entire truth. He didn't have the full, uh, uh, full information that he needed to be saved yet, but he was hungry for the truth. He was looking for the truth, he was searching for the truth, and he was receptive to the truth. He was open-minded and he was sensitive to what God was doing in his life. Another important thing in why God used this man is Cornelius understood respect. We struggle with that now. He was a military leader. So we see that when he sees the angel, he says, Lord, which is a sign of respect. Now, this is important to me. Not just does he look at the angel and say, Lord, is a sign of respect. That when the angel told him to do something, he didn't wait three weeks to do it. He didn't sit on it and think about it and be lazy about it. He acted immediately. So it's a sign of respect. If, if I were to ask one of the people that works here, hey, can you take care of this? And they wait a month to do it. That's disrespectful. 
And so we see that Cornelius acted expediently. Here's what we also learn, the opposite of this. God will not use rebellious people, arrogant people, and disrespectful people to do great things for his kingdom. In fact, the book of James says he draws humble people near to him, and it says in James that God pushes away from arrogant people. So even when it has the appearance that arrogant people are being successful in church or if they call themselves a Christian but they're arrogant, I give you my word, their time is short-lived. God pushes away from arrogant people, especially arrogant people who claim to follow him. He does not like that. God resists that. We also learn that there's a progression. This is very, very important. We see that throughout Cornelius' life, God gave him a revelation, and because he was faithful with that revelation, God gave him more revelation. In the Old Old Testament, I believe it's in Lamentations, it says that we're not to despise the days of small things. So if God gives us something small and we're faithful with that, God will give us more. And so God gives us signs all the time. God had given Cornelius signs. Eventually, one was a very obvious one, an angel, right? But there had been signs before that. And oftentimes, we, you and I, we say, God, give us a sign. And in Romans 1.20, Paul says, God gave us a huge sign called the universe, right? That we should be able to walk out and see the stars in the sky, the sun, the fact that if we study the planets and we study space and we see how intricate it is designed and how all the planets rotate around this big ball of fire and they don't incinerate and they don't collide and all this order and beauty that we should be able to look at all this and say, there is at least a God up there. I may not know everything about that God yet, but I have seen this sign, right? And if we will be open to that, God will give us further revelation. So the problem isn't that God doesn't give us signs. The problem is we're typically too distracted to see the signs. Or we've become so narcissistic that our hearts are hardened to the signs. God's given us signs all the time. The problem isn't God. The problem is our eyes. The problem is our antenna. And so Cornelius had responded to God long before we read about him. He was already on the right path and his response to God led him to the truth and it led him to salvation. Okay, next part. Let's see where our buddy Peter's at here. So the next day, as they were traveling and nearing the city, Peter went up to pray on a housetop about noon. Then he became hungry and wanted to eat. But while they were preparing something, he went into a visionary state. He saw heaven opened and an object that resembled a large sheet coming down, being lowered by its four corners to the earth. In it were all the four-footed animals and reptiles of the earth and the birds of the sky. Then a voice said to him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. No, Lord, Peter said, for I have never eaten anything unclean or common or ritually unclean. Again, a second time, A voice said to him, what God has made clean, you must not call common. This happened three times. Then the object was taken up into heaven. So 31 miles away from where Cornelius was, Peter was hanging out on a rooftop, right? So Cornelius had sent some men 
to go find Peter and bring him back. And so as they're getting close to where Peter is, Peter's up on the roof of this house around noon. He's praying to God and he goes into a visionary state. This isn't a dream. He's awake, he's alert, and God shows him this sign. And this sign is he sees heaven open up, the sky open up, and this huge sheet, kind of like a uh, picnic-like sheet, comes down from heaven and all kinds of animals were on this sheet. Now, this would have been repulsive for a Jew. The reason why is Jews were not allowed to eat a lot of different kinds of animals because in the Old Testament in Leviticus and Ezekiel and different books like that, it talks about certain animals are unclean or unfit for a Jew to eat. And so Peter being a good Jew had never had pork chops, right? He'd never eaten shrimp. He'd never been to Red Lobster, any of those places. He had never eaten any, (laughs) you don't want to go there anyways, right? He'd never been anywhere common or ritually unclean. And so again, when this sheet came down and they saw all these animals and a voice from heaven said, eat these things, Peter would have been repulsed. I'm repulsed by the fact that it says reptiles. What reptiles are good to eat unless you're from Louisiana, right? So, uh, but Peter, listen. (laughs) Someone said alligator. No, no, thank you. I'm fine. (laughs) Anyways, what's interesting about Peter, there are lots of threes in Peter's life. Oftentimes, Jesus speaks directly to Peter and it takes God, God, three times, often with Peter to get the message across. Three times that Peter denied Jesus, Three times that Jesus and Peter were on a beach and Jesus had to ask him the same question. Three times. Now, three times, God has to lower the sheet, raise it back up, lower it, raise it one more time, right? And then Peter goes, got it, right? You got my attention. Now, we pick on Peter sometimes. But in my life, there have been times God has told me something a hundred times before I responded. And so it's interesting. There's probably a lesson in this. We learn lots of lessons from Peter. And from this lesson, what I pick up is we learn a lesson of grace, and we also learn a lesson of obedience. God is gracious to repeat himself. He is God and we are humans. He should not have to repeat himself. But he is gracious in the fact that he will tell us things over and over again. He gives us so many chances to respond. But in our wisdom, or wisdom that we should have, we should be quick to respond to God. Eventually, we need to get the picture, and we need to be respondent to that. We need to act on that. So here's the thing. Food wasn't the point of this vision. We'll get to that here in a second. The food vision was to set up something much bigger. So God was saying, these things are not unclean anymore. These things are okay to engage in, to be around. But he wasn't specifically talking about animals so much. He was setting up that Peter was about to engage in a human that people had thought were unclean up to this point. So I got to studying this. Why did God change the dietary laws of the Bible, right? Because if you study it, it actually is healthier to stay away from a lot of the foods that the Bible tells us in the Old Testament to stay away from. But why did he now allow this? And one commentator wrote this. If we are to fully accept someone, we have to be willing to share a meal with them. And there was this roadblock for the Jews to minister to these other people because they ate different kinds of food. And so God removed that roadblock and said, go eat with them, spend time with them, get to know them and share the gospel with them. Pretty fascinating. Now, some of you guys may know people that who, who still stick to the dietary laws of the Old Testament. And there's nothing wrong with that. If you go back to Leviticus, if you go back to Ezekiel, if you know those weirdos that get the Ezekiel bread that tastes like cardboard, that is totally fine, Right? People can do that and that's okay. 
But we learn straight from the mouth of God that those things are not a requirement for his people anymore. Now, again, it's okay to do those things. And you can even dispute and talk about those things with other people. But we cannot make things like that a salvation issue anymore. And when we try to impose our personal convictions on other people, we cross a line that doesn't need to be crossed. Okay? All right? Next part. This is a lengthy part. Bear with me here. While Peter was deeply perplexed about the vision that he had seen, the men who had been sent by Cornelius, having asked directions to Simon's house, stood at the gate. They called out asking if Peter was lodging there. While Peter was thinking about the vision, the Spirit told him, three men are here looking for you. Get up, go downstairs, and accompany them with no doubts, because I have sent them. Then Peter went down to the men and said, here I am, the one you're looking for. What is the reason you're here? They said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who has a good reputation with the whole Jewish nation, was divinely directed by an angel to call you to his house and to hear a message from you. Peter then invited them in and gave them lodging. The next day, he got up and set out with them with some brothers from Joppa that went with him. The following day, he entered Caesarea. Now, Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him, fell at his feet, and worshipped him. But Peter helped him up and said, stand up, I myself am also a man. While talking with him, he went on in and found that many had come together there. Peter said to them, you know it is forbidden for a Jewish man to associate or visit with a foreigner. But God has shown me that I must not call any person common or unclean. That's why I came without any objection when I was sent for. So I ask, why did you send for me? Cornelius replied, four days ago at this hour, three in the afternoon, I was praying in my house. Just then a man in a dazzling robe stood before me and said, Cornelius, your prayers have been heard and your acts of charity have been remembered in God's sight. Therefore, send someone to Joppa and invite Simon here, who is all, uh, also named Peter. He's lodging with another Simon, the tanner's house by the sea. Therefore, I immediately sent for you, and you did the right thing in coming. So we are all present before God to hear everything that has been commanded by the Lord. Okay, so... As Peter was hanging out on the rooftop wondering what in the heck is up with the animals on the sheet, the men that Cornelius had sent were coming towards the gate and God told Peter, hey, there's some men here for you. Go with them and don't be afraid of it. Just go with them. I have sent them. It's cool. Go. Now, here's what is interesting to me. Peter accepted God's call to go before he even knew where in the heck he was going to go. He said yes before he even knew the details. So in our lives, guys, you and I, God will instruct us, but God is not going to tell us where to go unless we are willing to say yes before we even know where to go. Now, I know that we're to count the cost. The Bible says that. That we're to be responsible, right? That we're to be as logical as, you know, as we can without inferring or, 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 or deterring the Holy Spirit. I'm sorry. But... If God tells us to go somewhere, we are to trust him enough to not argue and banter back and forth, but to be obedient. 
So in my life, there have been times I've been scared when God says, go do this. I left a really good paying job to start this church. Didn't get paid for four years by this church when we first started it. And that was scary for me, working multiple jobs and wondering, God, what are you going to do? But I trusted, and I'm not bragging on me, but I trusted God enough. He told me to go. I went and I knew that however it was going to shake down, God was going to take care of me. That's where we need to end up. God, I don't know exactly where you're taking me, but if you're taking me there, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. And so he walks into the house, right? He meets Cornelius. Cornelius had called together his relatives and his close friends. Now, the reason why that's important is Peter would have been somewhat of a celebrity, and I I hate that word celebrity, not like people are celebrities now, but everyone would have known who Peter was. So he brings all these people together, but that's not why. The reason why he brought his relatives and close friends to hear Peter speak is Cornelius knew that Peter had a word from God. So he brought these people together. And when Peter walked in, Cornelius kind of lost it, right? Fell down and started worshiping Peter. And Peter immediately said, don't do that, right? Stand up. I'm a man, just like you're a man. Now that leads me to kind of go into this. and I'm going to be a jerk here for a second. A lot of modern day church leaders aren't so quick to take the attention off them. They like to absorb a little bit of it before they deflect it to Jesus. But here's the thing. All of us in this room, if you're a Christian, whatever compliments, whatever praise, whatever accolades you get, the first thing we need to get in the habit of doing is deflecting that praise right back to God because without God, we could not do any of it. So we need to be very quick to put that back on him. And so Peter walks in, right? And now the visions were starting to make sense. It would have been against the law for Peter to do this. But Peter went above man's law, and now he's following God's instruction. Walks into this house with all these Italians, right? My house on Friday. Walks into this house, and he says, look, I shouldn't be here. It is against the law for me to be with you guys. You guys are foreigners. But he says, now God has shown me that he wants to welcome everyone into his family. That everyone, regardless of nationality or color or background... Everyone is invited. So Peter knew that God had just changed the rules. Did he know God's rationale? Did he understand why God made all these decisions? It wasn't up for Peter to understand all that. Peter just knew that he had to be obedient. God says, go. Peter goes, right? And so Cornelius said, and maybe I look way too much into words, but Cornelius said, we are present. I don't think that he necessarily meant that we're all accounted for. We're all here. I think he meant that we are present mentally, we are present emotionally and spiritually to hear what you have to say. We are 100% focused on what God wants you to tell us. Now, here's the thing, guys. In church culture, I pick on church culture a lot. I think I have the right to do that since I'm like kind of in it, right? But anyways, in church culture nowadays, we think that growing the kingdom of God comes through mailers or Facebook ads, or we think it comes through all these other avenues. And I'm not saying that those things are completely bad, but a lot of churches send out stuff and they use all this money for advertising and marketing and branding and all this stuff. When in fact, I think we've made it too complicated and too mechanical that if all of us in this room, if we would have a prayer life, if we would pray to God, if we would be present mentally and emotionally and spiritually, and if we would position ourselves, get this, to engage people around us and love them and share the gospel with them, we wouldn't have to do all these cheesy mailing campaigns. Guys, by the way, we don't do those because it's dumb. Anyways, we wouldn't have to do all these things. 
that if we were just engaging people's lives, if we were loving people, if we were praying for God to send us people and to make sure that we're around people that need to hear it, if we just built relationships, the church would grow. And the church would grow exponentially. That's what God wanted us to do, to engage people, love them, share the gospel. Okay, next part. Then Peter began to speak. Now I really understand that God doesn't show favoritism, but in every nation, the person who fears God and does righteousness is acceptable to him. He sent the message to the Israelites proclaiming the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, that he is Lord of all. You know the events that took place throughout Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all of those who were under the tyranny of the devil because God was with him. We ourselves are witnesses of everything he did in the Judean country and in Jerusalem, yet they killed Jesus by hanging him on a tree. God raised up this man on the third day and permitted him to be seen, not by all people, but by us, witnesses appointed beforehand by God, who ate and drank with Jesus after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to solemnly testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about Jesus that through his name, everyone who believes in him will receive forgiveness of sins. So God doesn't show favoritism. This Jewish fisherman who followed Jesus literally for three and a half years when he was on earth now becomes the leader of the Christian movement, right? The Christians on earth, he becomes the leader. And in one conversation, Peter's gonna sweep away centuries and centuries and centuries of prejudice against other people. And here's what he says. This is vitally important. It doesn't matter what country, it doesn't matter what kind of government they're under, it doesn't matter the color of their skin, any of these things. People in every nation, the person who fears God and does righteousness is accepted by God. That's as simple as it is. Salvation is for everyone that will trust in Jesus and obey Jesus' commands. It is that simple. So more than likely, everyone in Cornelius' home knew of the historical Jesus. This is about 10 years removed, they think, from Jesus' crucifixion. So a Roman centurion would have been very well aware of Jesus and the history of Jesus. But Peter didn't come to tell these people what Jesus did. They, they knew that Jesus had died on a cross. They knew that Jesus had these followers. They knew that. He came to tell them why Jesus did what he did. And this is so big. This is so important. The reason Jesus died on a cross for people was to deliver them from the tyranny of the devil and to offer them forgiveness of all the things they had done wrong through the cross. Now, let me go back to this tyranny of the devil. The world right now teaches us that if we do whatever we want, if we live hedonistically, if we just have no rules, no restrictions, just complete pursuit of, of feeling good and doing what makes us feel better about ourselves, that we are liberated, we are free. The Bible tells the exact opposite that it is hedonism, it is living contradictory to Jesus that actually enslaves us 
That's why we have so many addicts in the world. That's why we have so many people who are falling apart relationally. And that's why we have all of these things happening is because we've pursued self more than God. And that has not liberated us. It has enslaved us. And Jesus has come to set us free from the tyranny of evil, from the tyranny of the devil. And not just as he set us free from the tyranny of the devil, all the mistakes we'd made in the past can be forgiven and erased for eternity because of the cross. Beautiful, wonderful how Peter lays this out. Peter also lays out that this wasn't a one-time event, that salvation is a recurring event, that it's active and it's, it's something that all people are invited to participate in. So here essentially is salvation according to the scripture in the New Testament to the best of my abilities to sum up very, very concisely. So John, Paul, and James wrote these different things in different books of the Bible. And here's kind of salvation in a snapshot that we are saved by grace through faith, that that leads us into an obedient life to Jesus and we perform good works for his kingdom. That is essentially the gospel. We're saved by grace through faith. We're obedient to the commandments of Christ and we perform good works that edify each other and glorify God. That is essentially the gospel of Jesus Christ. Okay, last part. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came down on all those who heard the message. The circumcised believers, that's the Jewish Christians, who had come with Peter were astounded because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they heard them speaking in other languages and declaring the greatness of God. Then Peter responded, Can anyone withhold water and prevent these people from being baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just like we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to stay for a few more days. So, at some point in Peter's conversation, as he's talking to all these people crammed into Cornelius' house, God had seen enough in a good way. All these people's hearts are ready, so he fills them all with his Holy Spirit. Now, this is often called the Gentile Pentecost. The Jewish Pentecost was Acts chapter 2. That's when all the followers of Jesus were filled with his Holy Spirit. They pour out onto the street, uh, kind of spontaneously pour out onto the street. They're speaking in other tongues, which are languages that other people spoke. There's 15 of them that I think are listed in Acts chapter 2. A very similar thing happens with non-Jewish people in Acts chapter 10, Gentiles. Now, there's all this debate. What kind of speaking in tongues was this? Was this the kind of speaking in tongues in Acts chapter 2, where they're speaking languages that other people knew? Or was this the prayer language? That's not a biblical term. It's a modern Christian term. Or was this a prayer language like what's mentioned in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14? Because they all spoke the same language. So for them to speak in a, in a foreign language didn't really make much sense in that context. But that's not really the point. The point is this. The same Holy Spirit that filled the insiders had now filled the outsiders. So the whole game had changed. These outsiders were now welcomed into the family of God. The Bible says grafted in, that now everyone was welcomed. And the response to that was baptism in the name of Jesus Christ. So what we see is this, whenever there is genuine faith, action will follow. So they genuinely gave their life to Christ. They were filled with the Spirit of God, and the response was baptism. And we see that over and over and over again throughout the book of Acts. 
What else is interesting, because our church, I think we're doing it right, right? That Peter delegates baptism to the people that he brought, that he didn't do it all. It's funny, in modern day churches, they always think it has to be the pastor that baptizes people, and that is just not the way they did it in Acts. It's fine for me to baptize people. I baptized a lot of you, but he delegated this out to other believers. And he said, okay, you guys get to baptizing, right? And so these six men that he brought started doing the work with him. He was bringing up more leaders. He was discipling. He was letting the presumably younger people get involved into the process. And so a radical breakthrough has just taken place in Acts chapter 10. There is now a new precedent that has never been set anywhere else in the Bible until this point, that anyone willing to accept the truth would be welcomed into the family of Jesus Christ. Everyone. It was now available for everybody. Everyone was now welcome into the kingdom of God. So let's talk about that for a second. I'm going to try to paint a picture, and I'll probably fail miserably at this, but I'm, but I'm going to try. Do you guys sometimes forget that if we call ourselves Christians, that means that you and I have a personal relationship with the Creator God? Not just some thing that hangs out in the cosmos, not just some ambiguous term. Listen. The God of Genesis 1 and 2 spoke everything into existence, hung the stars in the sky, created the oceans, created the mountain landscape. The God that created every animal created you. That if we are followers of Jesus, we have a personal one-on-one relationship with God. Have you guys, do we forget that sometimes? How big of a deal this is, right? That we have a relationship Regardless of our skin color, regardless of our geography, regardless of our nationality, regardless of our appearance, even regardless of the things we had done in the past, that we can have a relationship with the artist, the architect, the creator of everything. Now, here's where we mess up. A lot of us want a relationship with the creator, but we don't want to change to fit him. We want to make the creator look more like us, and that's not the way God works. The creator does not start to look more like the creation. It's the other way around. So whenever we come into a relationship with God, we are called to start being fashioned into the likeness of God. But what we tend to do, guys, I've done it is if I come into a relationship with God, I start reading the Word of God, and if some of this doesn't line up to my personal thoughts, I start cutting parts out. I start reevaluating things. I start making the Creator look more like me, and again, that's just not the way it works. When we have a true relationship with Him, we start to act more like God. We start to think more like God. We start to look at other people more like God. He doesn't start acting more like us. He's God. We start acting more like him. And this is where we tend to have a problem. This is where we tend to have a problem of becoming a family member with God. So let's talk about that. What does it mean to be accepted into God's family? Now listen, this isn't for me to like, I don't want you to like have pity for me or you know, come up and hug me afterwards. It's fine if you want to, but I've never had a tight family dynamic. I have a good relationship with my mother Beyond my mother, I have a couple of relatives on her side that I'll talk to a couple of times a year, but even my sister, we talk maybe once a year. Uh, my father's not in my life. I've never had family. It's just never been a big, big part of my life. That's unfortunate, but it, it is what it is. And so when I became a Christian, 
And I, got, I, I started to understand and hear that I get to be a part of God's family, a family that is bigger than flesh and blood. It is a family based on His blood, on what He had done for me. So when I talk about God's family, I don't know if anyone can relate in this room. I don't know if anyone else, you know, this time of year is not always the happiest time of year, you know, that there's a lot of drama and confusion and sometimes it's sad for some of us. I don't know if any of you can relate to that. But there is a lot of beauty in the fact that God says, there's room at my table. There's room with me. You may be lonely here. There may not be a lot of humans around you. But God says, come on, you can sit with me. That's huge to me. And since that's so huge to me, I have to go back to the word and say, God, am I, am I living up to my end of it? Am I accepting your invitation to sit at your table? Now, if we're going to accept the invitation to sit at God's table, it starts with humility. Guys, I don't, I don't mean to be mean. I don't mean to be brash or whatever the word may be. But we have to learn that he is God and we are not that he has the answers. This book contains the words that lead us to eternal life. We have to be humble enough to know that we don't have it all figured out, but God does. Well, Corey, I don't understand it. You're not gonna understand it all. You're not gonna be able to figure it all out, but we have to trust that the creator knows what he's doing. We have to trust that Christ loves us and wants what's best for us. It all hinges on humility. We must be humble. Listen, we must also be willing to submit to authority. That's not just God's authority. That should be a given. But guys, we've got to learn to submit to earthly authority as well. It's one of the Ten Commandments to honor your father and mother. That's one of the, it's one of the basic structures of authority that a lot of people in this day and age don't adhere to. But that's one of the Ten Commandments that we are supposed to submit to pastoral authority. And I know that's weird coming from a pastor, and I don't want you guys to like walk around, oh, Bishop, you know, I don't want any of that. That's weird, right? But if you consider me your shepherd, if you consider me your pastor, that's where that word comes from, if you consider me that, if you ask my opinion, take it. I'm not right all the time, guys. Well, please don't clap for that. I'm not right all the time. I make lots of mistakes, but if you trust me, Trust me, God has placed me in your life to help you however I can. And again, I'm not perfect. But listen, I learned a long time ago because I have spiritual authority in my life that I submit to. I have elders and I have another pastor that I submit to. And I learned that when I left the church, that I became a Christian and I left, and it was ugly, not because I had done anything to them, but when I left, I mean, they, didn't, they didn't treat me very well. But I made a promise to my pastor, I would never speak poorly about him, I would never do anything to hurt his church, and I honored his authority. To this day, I honor his authority. And because of that, God could trust me with some authority. But if we do not respond well to earthly authority, God will never put you in a place of authority. We've got to be willing to submit to authority, even authority that is corrupt sometimes like King David did with Saul, another Saul, when he had the opportunity to kill him multiple times, but he knew that he should not touch God's anointed man. They shouldn't do it. God will bless us if we will submit to authority. We must also be hungry for truth, regardless of what that truth tells us. 
We must be hungry to know the truth, even if we don't like the truth, even if the truth doesn't line up with culture, even if the truth doesn't line up with my lifestyle. This is the truth. I believe it with every fiber of my being. I believe that this book is the truth. And when I read this book, and it tells me that intoxication is a sin or sex before marriage is wrong. When I read these things, those are just two examples, but when I read these things, and if I'm doing those things, I have to submit to this. This is the truth, I have read the truth, and I have to accept the truth regardless of what it costs me, regardless of what it tells me about my personal life. And I must be willing to respond to that truth and be obedient to that truth. Listen. Jesus Christ said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So whenever people say, I'm in the family of God, I love Jesus, I break a lot of the things Jesus told me not to break, but I love Jesus, he's my papa, daddy, whatever the crap people call him, all these things, and we kind of put on this facade of having this tight relationship with him. But Jesus said, if you truly love me, you'll do what I tell you to do. Those are Jesus' words. So not only do we know the truth, we have to be obedient to the truth. We have to respond to truth to be in the family of God. We also need to know that when we get into the family of God, that we don't remain infants, but we grow up. I think it was even Paul that said, when I was a young man, I did stupid things like young men did. But eventually I grew up, right? I think it was Peter, it was either Peter or Paul, it was one of those guys, said that we used to do the milk of the word, but eventually there needs to come a time where you get into the deep end, the meat, right? You need to start chewing on the tough conversations, getting into the more complicated things of God, that we don't remain in the shallow kiddie pool, that we eventually learn to swim, that we are to grow, we are to get deeper in our relationship with God. And then to be in the family of God means that we understand that this is a lifelong commitment regardless of what we have to give up. It is a lifelong commitment even if you have to lose family members, even if you have to lose jobs, even if you have to be persecuted, even if you lose relationships, even if people treat you terribly, to be in the family of God. So many times in the New Testament, it says those that persevere to the end. This is a commitment. It's a lifelong commitment until our eternity that we are in this for the long haul. Guys, it feels, it gives us like the warm and fuzzies to say that we're in the family of God. We love that, right? He's our father. We love him. But unless we're doing these things, we're not truly in the family of God. So I don't know where you are on this list. And if you don't think this list pertains to you at all, I can tell you where you are. You're at number one. And I'll tell you what, guys, it would do a lot of us good. All of us could humble ourselves more to God. All of us could reach out and muster up some more humility. But wherever you are on this, maybe you are the most humble person. Maybe you submit. Maybe you're hungry for the truth. But maybe you haven't responded to the truth. Maybe you've been a Christian for five years, but you haven't matured in your faith. Maybe you say you're committed, but when God asks you to give things up, maybe you're reluctant. Or maybe you don't trust that he's going to take you where he wants you to be. But here's where I want to challenge you guys. As we take communion today, maybe, maybe take a peek at this and say, God, where am I on this spectrum? 
Do I need to humble myself? Do I need to submit myself? Do I need to search harder for the truth? Am I not responding? Am I not being obedient? Am I not maturing? Have I not committed regardless of the sacrifice? And guys, it's this simple. We ask God to forgive us. We tell him we love him. We take communion and we, rem we remember that even while we were incomplete, even while we were sinners, he died on the cross for us because he loves us more than anything. And we move forward into the family of God. Listen, on a side note, and I'll quit talking because I'm taking too much time. If there are any of you in here this time of year who are lonely, you struggle with depression or you've had bridges burned in your life or scars from hurts or relationships or whatever the case may be, I wanna tell you, over the years that we've done this church, I may not have had all the flesh and blood family in my life that I've wanted, but God has sent me brothers and sisters in him. He has sent me uncles and aunts in him. He has sent me father figures. He sent me great people in my life who have filled that void. Because there is something even deeper than earthly family, and that is our spiritual family, that we will be with for eternity. So if you're in this room and you're struggling, if you're lonely, not only can we have a relationship with God, but there's all these great people around you. There's people that will help you and hold you up and love you, invite you over for dinners and be a part of your life. Just ask you to pray about that, consider that. Don't try to go through this alone. We're not meant to go through it alone. Would you bow your heads with me, please? As your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, there'll be people up here on my right and left. If you need prayer for anything, please, please come and get prayer. Anything you need. If it's a physical need or a financial need or maybe, again, maybe this time of year is rough for you. Maybe you need to pray for God to forgive you for something and you just want someone to pray with you or maybe you need the courage to, to mend a broken relationship. I don't know what your prayer request is, but come and let them pray for you. There's also communion all the way around you, wherever the little lamps are on the tables. I encourage you, A, ask God to forgive you of your sins, and B, maybe take a peek up at this, at this screen and say, God, where am I on that list? Show me. And if I need to repent or if I need to take steps to be something different, God, just help me. And I give you my word, guys. He will help you. Lord Jesus, God, I just want to pray against loneliness right now. Father, I want to pray for all the people, God, who maybe feel like they don't have family, maybe people who have made mistakes or they've had things done to them. God, I pray, Lord, that you remind us that if we will just submit to you, Father, if we will just be humble, Lord, there is always room at the king's table. There is always a place for us, God. Lord, if there's anyone in this room who's not a follower of you, I pray, God, that you just touch their hearts. Lord, that you help them, God, to, to come to a, a revelation of who you are. I pray that during this season, Lord, that we can be thankful, that we can be humble, that we can be reminded, God, of how much you love us and how blessed we are. Lord, we love you. We thank you and we praise you, God. Bless my brothers and sisters in this room. Until we meet again, Lord, in Jesus' name.
Amen. I love you guys so much. You're welcome to help yourself to communion. And there's prayer up here at the right and left. Thank you guys so much.